This is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 12th episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm joined here with Alexander, and today we will be exploring the topic of where personal responsibility ends and social responsibility begins. In these frustrating times of high unemployment and rapidly expanding automation, it has never been more important than it is now to discuss what role the state has in providing its citizens and where exactly each man, woman, child hold themselves accountable. Ideas such as UBI or universal basic income have gained traction over the years, but does that mean we have stopped expecting anything from everyone? Or perhaps the things that we are expecting are no longer the things that our society needs and requires. Alexander, why don't you take over and, and let us know why this is a topic you're interested in. Well, I think that those are two very sacred responsibilities, both for me as an American and also for the government that I choose to live within. So my personal responsibility, um, I think that there are a few things that I have to do every day in order to make myself happy and growing. And I think the same way in terms of how the social responsibility, which I guess you could say is like a collective responsibility, maybe not so much an institutional responsibility, <clears throat> but kind of like how our culture upholds certain ideals um, as the more important thing to, to keep in line. Um, so for my personal responsibility, really for me, the essence of life for me is growth. Um, and growth to me is a sense of honesty. And we're, you know, traveling through my life with as much honesty and truth as I can, even if it means, you know, taking a very hard look at the things that I've done. I have to be honest with myself and I have to be honest with others. Otherwise, I'm not going to grow. It's when I don't grow that I feel like my personal responsibility isn't being really managed well. Um, so I think first and foremost, honesty and truth is the most essential item for my personal responsibility. Um, you could say the same thing for social responsibility truth and honesty, but I would argue that it actually matters a little less because it, it comes to a point where you start having these like group think that you have to kind of talk to society almost like they're a child that doesn't know better, you know, and you have to be the parent in the room. I don't know where that line is, you know, I don't know where that exact responsible line is, but I think that is part of the equation. You know, Alex, I, I kind of want you to expand. I, I like what you said about growth. Can you talk about what are some of the things that are within your domain of growth? Uh, so under Stoicism, for example, you have to bucket the things that are out of your control and the things that are within your control. So in your personal life, what would you say you're accountable for in terms of your own growth? My word is definitely, um, if not the most important thing, you know, promises that I make. And Lord knows I've broken so many promises, right? But, you know, it's really about just doing your absolute best to uphold that. For me, it's really like morning time, honestly, is like where I go to, to hone those things because it's controllable. You know, I can wake up at a particular time in the day, the world is quiet, the sun's just coming up, birds are chirping, and I have this small chunk of time where I can work on myself and work on what I think is my sense of honesty and forging, mentally speaking, changes in my life for my growth. So in terms of the absolute core essentials to that really for me it's waking up early in the morning and writing down in my journal um, which I've kept doing for a long period of time and there's been swaths of time where I've like not done it of course you, you know, know it's, it's funny you mention this waking up early because we tend to think of alarm clocks as only being that thing that we use 
uh, for work. Like, oh my God, I have to be up at 5.30. But it could be a Saturday, and maybe there are things that you want to achieve on a Saturday. And I think like personal accountability is still using that alarm clock on a Saturday in order to achieve the things that you want to do, whether it's cleaning your apartment or uh, going for a long bike ride you always have that power to take ownership of your day. And that's what I like about waking up early. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. Um, having ownership of your day is kind of like being the captain of your own life ship. You know, it's otherwise you're just, you know, a ship with no sail. You're just floating wherever the current takes you. So waking up and having ownership is a good way for you to direct that. One, one thing I also find helpful is I... I'm still recovering, but I have a huge YouTube addiction. <laughs> I, I, I watch a lot of YouTube, and YouTube would usually lull me in in the morning. Like, you know that mm. time where you wake out of your bed, and you just grab your phone, maybe go on a little Facebook, and you see this cool video, and then that video leads to another video. I find that the only way that I can combat my YouTube addiction is if I have something that I have to accomplish at, like, 10 a.m., if I have something on my calendar that like, okay, at 10 o'clock I'm talking with this person or I'm taking a walk over here, then that immediately, whether it's a day that I have work or don't have work, it doesn't really matter. If I have something on my calendar, then that kind of gives that day purpose immediately. Yeah, I think assigning something on a day is a good way of like practicing personal accountability too, right? If you're designating your Saturday to do those things and then you go and you do it, you definitely get like a dopamine hit in your reticular activation zone and your brain spreading that chemistry throughout your entire body and you feel completely motivated and, you know, like you like you did something. Absolutely. I think, honestly, for me, though, it's it's ironic because I need to add a disclaimer here. You know, for the for the past few months, like, my sense of personal ownership has been in a far more like... Um, stasis place you know like an introspective like calm water kind mm. of place as opposed to activity you know and um everyone's going through their own sp uh, specific challenges here through through this particular time but my personal accountability for me has been more like taking stock entirely from like end to end like real deep dives into what am i doing here why am i here am i following through with a higher purpose and maybe that's where my, for, for my personal ethos, like where personal accountability starts to then with social responsibility. Because as Americans and as thinkers, which, you know, I would like to assume we're both in agreement. You know, you're definitely a thinker. I would like to think of myself I, as one. I'm flattered you think I'm a thinker. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, why am I doing these things? Like, what's the overarching like what's the what's the what's the magnum opus of uh, of what you do? From I want to you, you touched on a chord that I think a lot of people are actually struggling with right now, and that's this idea of introspection or personal growth. So when we put something on our calendar for like 10 a.m., for example, we always think it has to be something external. Like I have to get on the subway, I have to go here. But what happens when your growth requires you to be in your apartment? Or what if it requires you to cultivate thoughts in your head? And I think that's the, the difficult uh, part for most people is growing, but not necessarily taking a trip to the library. I mean, if the <laughs> libraries were even open right now, but finding a way to grow within our personal space. And the way I kind of think of it is if you have that thing on Saturday at 10 a.m. that you must do, then it ha even if it is within the confines of your apartment, then it's, I'm reading this book at 10 a.m. 
or it's I am meditating at 10 a.m. or I am journaling, like you said earlier, at 10 a.m. But the trick is, is that watching Netflix or engaging in some type of distraction is not a part of that personal growth. It's okay if you don't leave your apartment because your personal growth requires you to be at home, but having like some kind of TV in the background, I think that kind of derails most people. I agree. And I, I think people just don't really think of themselves as some, you know, there's only so much space that you have in your head in a day, you know, and there should be a little bit of a sanctity in that. And I think that part of philosophy has been sincerely lost. And now we're getting into like the social responsibility. The social responsibility should be instilling those values into you early enough where you look at yourself as some form of sacred, living, conscious being floating through this crazy rocket ship out in space that has the ability to build skyscrapers. That's pretty damn cool. So it's, of course, like, it's so easy for us with microphones to be like, you know, um, actualize yourself, become the ultimate version, but like not even that, just just the sacred stuff, right? Like um, where are your boundaries when you are protecting yourself like what is your level of vulnerability it's not a binary yes or no well i can be vulnerable to a point but yes at a point there has to be a boundary where it's like oh no no that's okay i'm not comfortable with that this is where i draw the line like respectfully but no one's teaching that and so i think all those distractions they're like um uh the youtube which god lord knows i'm such a history youtube nerd um so i dive down deep in that <laughs> hours and hours of lectures and shit stupid you know silly stuff um, i wouldn't say that's the biggest waste of time but okay. <laughs> you know I've we'll see a lot worse things on youtube fair enough fair enough but you know people don't view their mental garden um as i like to call that you know in that capacity where it's like there's there's an inner peace into having space in between things huh. right where it's you know you, it doesn't have to be so overgrown and one essence of life to me is like everything is always shifted out and decaying and growing at the same time, you know? So it's like the the opportunity to choose those things that go into your head is one of the most sentient things you can do in your life, especially today. Like right now, I think we're in this kind of um, evolutionary period where it's just we have, you know, all this data coming through, right? And like we're getting up to 5G and the Internet of Things is coming through and our interaction with how those things start operating is going to change information's even going to double triple moore's law we can get into all that but you do have the opportunity to to choose that the difficult part is is that everything we enjoy that gives us additional like opportunities to learn things i.e youtube right you can learn anything on youtube yeah you could it could be a, a force of good i agree and it, and it is you know but it's there's always a duality to that right mm. and so you know the the personal responsibility should be oh i'm choosing what i'm letting into my mental garden and the social responsibility should be we're cautious about what we have socially available to be consumed without any kind of gatekeeping i like that i like this idea of a mental garden because as a gardener you have to take responsibility for plucking the weeds and if you have like let's say something like youtube for example Maybe there is a philosophical YouTube video or there's a very, you're listening to like a Noam Chomsky speech or so, something that's really profound and really is going to help uh, enhance your thinking. Then that's an example of something that should be allowed in the garden from time to time. Yes. But you as the gardener have to be like, no, that was a, a, a silly kind of um, YouTube, we used to call it YouTube poop 
video, uh, like just a ridiculous kind of absurd video that you would just watch for, to, to waste time, you as the gardener have to be like, no, that's a weed, and I need to take that out of my garden. Mm-hmm. And, you know, information really is power, right? I mean, just all changes in history stem from new particular pieces of information that, you know, were either intentionally distorted or um, discovered, uh, you know, and like, that's like a 12 hour conversation, right? So if we already know, just resembling through history, that information is all of those things, you know, information uh, has that power to, to change, then that should be taught at a very young age, right? Not moral, not attaching moral to it, but you know, like a neutral ground, right? Like, where's where's the where's the uh, intermezzo between all the crazy enough crazy stuff that we go through, right? Like, it doesn't need to be religious. That's one way. It doesn't need to be necessarily like ideological. It just should be this kind of like purgatory where it's like it is and it isn't at the same time. The values equal the same. This is just how your physiology soaks in information. And, you know, whatever you feel towards that, your emotional connections to that, is like your, your roadmap through that, I think. I think that's kind of why people, when they have their Saturday, it kind of turns into a YouTube slash Netflix Saturday in terms of their personal growth. It's because they want to they wanna see human faces on the TV and feel emotion. Like, I don't know if people necessarily watch something on Netflix because they want to learn. I mean, there are people out there who do watch documentaries about the stock market and so forth. <laughs> but a lot of people want to see a drama. They want to see a woman crying and running down the streets. They want to see an angry man. They, they want to feel these emotions. And I think that um, it's okay to feel emotions, but let those emotions be internal to yourself like you're joyful because you've achieved something or you're upset at a loved one don't necessarily live vicariously through the mediums that you're engaging with yeah and i think that that is the natural monkey brain pull to these things like i was just commenting to a friend today about how instagram just turned into this like sexual thing and now these reels and it's just totally altering my experience with that content and I think in terms of the way modern society views content is that they're not really looking at it um, in spectrum. Yeah. You know, it's like, did I get it or did I not? But the reality is, is like, it's so easy to just pull up YouTube and to find those things that it detracts from the value of more consistent. It's like tortoise in a hare. You yeah. know, like we're always trying to reach the hare where they're, but it's better to actually think, oh, okay. Well, if I were to learn a skill, right? Like if I were to learn how to barbecue, and I know that, you know, my two best friends, they live together in this apartment. They know how to barbecue. If I learn how to barbecue, I will have that connection with them over barbecue in a more yes. sustainable, like richer way. That's actually tangible, you know, that applies meaning. I think people just look at YouTube and content kind of as like, I need this now. And I can, I, I honestly think that I can explain the physiological um, reactions to that and p how people can fix it because I've recently studied this and like mapped out my whole thought process and like where where does my heroic fantasy stem from like at what particular part of my thought does that like branch off and like what part of my brain takes care of that and how does that go and yes. it's, it's dangerous it's a sliding scale you know I, I love I love exactly what you're saying because I think that what we're doing is we're opting for the cheap kind of journeys like we're all watching Luke Skywalker, mm -hmm. and that's and we make that our journey. Oh, Luke Skywalker's journey is my journey. 
but we're denying ourselves real human interaction and real journeys. And I think that the emotional intensity you have in doing a barbecue with some friends and actually achieving something and right. producing great food and talk to 10 people in your backyard or, and, and saw some fireworks, I think that that kind of real life emotional bonding, like watching real fireworks is really gonna make you happier than watching the Death Star explode for the 20th time. Completely agree. And you know, like what we're talking about is culture. Yeah. You know, like what is our culture? Our culture is like sitting in our ivory tower, you know, things are too hot to touch. I can't really in involve in like a spectrum of dialogue without feeling some sort of like aggressiveness. Right, right. You know, there's a fragility in that. And every single person alive, I don't care how much you feel about that argument or not, has that sense of fragility. You know, a lot of, there's posturing on all sides. Like, let's just be 100% clear. Right. Humanity isn't that different, yet we're all so different, right? But this is our current culture. Whereas you look at, Luke Skywalker, right? What is that about? The hero's journey. Where sure. did the hero's journey start? The Odyssey. <laughs> who who based their lives off of Homer? Like who based their lives off of Achilles? Hundreds of famous uh, historic people decided they wanted to live like Achilles. Yes. Not I want to watch Achilles. Exactly. It's not enough to just consume uh, these myths. Like these myths. Like I'm not saying that these myths. Are, and I'm actually, for those who can't see us, I'm actually wearing a Star Wars shirt right now. <laughs> um, but I, I will say that it's like, it's not enough to just consume these myths. We actually have to enact them in some mm -hmm. way. And, 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 and I think that's like, the, that's the step that a lot of people have trouble with, is that they consume, consume, they feel good. But then if they're not actually doing something with these myths, it's not leading to any change and not any real emotional change within them. 100%. And this is why, you know, I, I put so much focus on some of the more classic literature, you know, because it's really about that. You know, it's like, how do I reconnect with my individual self for me to carry through this sense of ethos? And um, how can I advance my culture and in, in my small little world and the few people that are I feel privileged to be around during that time? Like, no one talks about that. No one talks about ethics. Yeah. You know, like I, I can't even define to you um, what our current ethics are. And I think that it'd be easy for us to go into the negative. But like in terms of just positive, like what, what are they and are they upheld? You know, like we can say that maybe one of the ethics to being an American is freedom of speech. Sure. But that's not entirely true. Right. I mean, it's 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 gotten a lot more difficult, I would say. I, right. I would say that there is. Um, I, I do want to get back to personal responsibility, but just to touch on that briefly, we have this idea that people, the people who we're talking to are not coming from a good place. And I think that in order to have freedom of speech, there has to be a fundamental belief that the person you're talking to is expressing viewpoints because they want to better humanity hmm. and they might be wrong right you might disagree with them but you see that they are your neighbor they see that they are your brethren they just happen to be off course and you still love them and they still love you and everything is good between you you just disagree about like the graduated income tax <laughs> right and and it's not like this uh, emotional like you're a bad person because you believe you have a you have a slightly different quasi variant opinion about how taxes should be levied. <laughs> <laughs>
get back on the personal responsibility yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, for sure. For me, I really think it just comes down to are you able to understand others, you know, and other, other opinion? I, I don't know. You know, I, I guess if like if I had to break down my personal sense of code, it's tell the truth, keep yourself accountable, and always remind yourself if there's one thing you know for sure, it's that you don't know anything at all. I like this idea. I, I think that th this is something I should probably do is actually write down my personal code because I think we all have personal codes. We're just unaware of them. Like I, I like to, like, like you were saying, when I cannot fulfill a promise, I'm not perfect. There are promises I probably have not fulfilled, but I need to at the very least apologize for it and take mm -hmm. ownership over it. Whereas mm -hmm. there's other people who may have a different code where it's like, Oh, well, I kind of just use people when it's convenient. And um, I don't know, have you ever been stood up before? Yeah. Yeah, it's, that is, I think, the worst form of like moral code. Mm. Like it's, it's, it's like, okay, I'm not putting that person as a murderer. Like they're not on the same category. <laughs> right. But, but it, it, it's at a point where <laughs> if we agree to meet at a place at 4 o'clock, and mm -hmm. this has happened to me before, and you're not there, and there's not even that like 20 minutes, oh, hey, so sorry, can't, like nothing. I'm just yeah. standing there, I text you, I give you a call, and you're not there. That's personal accountability in a nutshell right there. There's mm. nothing systemic about you not making that appointment. And right. people will be like, oh, I've got three kids, you don't understand, we're coming from different places. Fair enough, but pick up your phone an hour before and be like, hey, my kid just got sick. I'm not going to be able to meet you. Even if I was like 25% on the way there, I'd be angry. I'm not going to lie. I'm not. I'm human. I'm going to be upset. <laughs> but I'm like, thank you for at least picking up the phone and texting yeah. me an hour before that you were not going to make it so I can just like get off the train and head on back. But to stand there and not hear anything from you, I think is ridiculous. Completely agree. And also that they know they're not making it and then they choose to avoid the facing of the oh I'm sorry yes is yes. like another degree you know yes <laughs> it's yes. like another degree of um, I don't know what you would call a shittiness I guess you know, <laughs> you know it, it, shit it squared it, yeah shit squared I love that um, it, it's just this inability of not having a, a personal moral code that that comes down to because you kind of if you have if you're one of these people that stands people up you see every interaction as a transactional rela uh, relationship. So I'm going to meet this person. What can I get out of them? Oh, that person is of no value to me. Therefore, I don't owe them an explanation. Mm -hmm. I can just vanish into the wind. And you're not even aware of someone else, that someone else has a mental state. Mm -hmm. You're not. You're only right. aware of your own mental state and what you what's directly in front of you. And anyone else is suffering. You're completely oblivious to. 100%. And that may be the worst of all sense, honestly, is to, to um, what's that term when you're in your own box? You're in your own echo chamber? Yes, yes, yeah. You know, it's, um, I was like that. I was like that coming out of college, honestly. Um, oh, we've all had periods of yeah. that, for sure. And um, when I came to the city and I was helping run this acting studio, it was really everything that we're saying we're missing they had in spades right mm. these random people coming up you know really diving into their personal stories because the the art form of the acting we were doing was kind of like um putting real life into these like filling the words up with our real life is like the simplest way of putting it 
So there was a lot of like off the cuff, you know, expressions of what was actually happening that like wasn't on camera or anything that we used as kind of like a vehicle. Right, right. Um, and that was like the art form. And that's, that's messy in its own right. You know, we could talk about that. But um, what was amazing for me as an audience member was seeing all these people come up and just talk about their experiences. And so my perception started to honeycomb. And, you know, I realized that, oh, it's, it's not simple cell. It's complex, right? It's right, like, right, right. There's all these different degrees and where I thought I was being empathetic and open to other people's plights and internal whateverness, I wasn't. I wasn't enough, you know? And it was, you know, moments like that where I started hearing the stories and started to really understand that the most generous thing you can do in a day is listen. Yes, yes. Full stop. Absolutely. I think that should also be a part of people's moral code is, okay, I've done my fair share of talking, and that's that's needed. We all have things we have to get off our chest, and that's yeah. fine. But there's an ebb and flow, and there's a give and take in all of this. And I, I always, you know, I come to this quote, I think, I think I heard it on the show Mad Men, where Don Draper is saying, oh, it's it's not polite to talk about yourself. And for some reason, that quote has always just stood with me. And we can debate, you know, I don't think it's like, if you have some really good news in your life and you share it, I don't think you're rude. But I like this idea that there's a little check in your mind of like, I don't, it's not all about me. Like, it's like, I don't just meet people to just talk about myself. I meet them because I also care about what's going on with them as well. Hmm. You know, talking about our sense of code, that exact subject to me has evolved in the past like three weeks, four weeks. Nice. Um, I'm pretty private outside my inner circle. <laughs> uh, my inner circle, I probably lean more towards oversharing. And, you know, that I don't think really is an effective way. And where I think that, especially as men, there's not really a safe space in terms of talking like that so much. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was only born a man, so I can't speak for the other, you know, the other sides. Um, but for my personal experience, changing that perception around others can be a little bit dangerous in, in a lot of ways. Like you start seeing kind of the, the group think morph into this, oh, and I don't even think it's on purpose. I just think it's subconscious where it's like they want to treat you like wounded Mm, right. Whereas, like someone like myself, I'm extremely open with those that I know are in my inner circle, and I have zero problem talking about anything. Yes. To the to the T, you know, to a point where they're like, some people don't know how to respond because it's exactly how I feel, like good and bad, three dimensional. I want to talk about the wounded because I actually think it fits very nicely with our conversational personal accountability. Hmm. When I have a problem. I think one solution that I have, and I do confide in friends and so forth, and we have like long walks over cups of tea and Starbucks and so forth. That's awesome. One of the things that I do with my friends though is that if I have an issue, I always frame it as a problem that I am trying to solve. So whatever the issue is with personal at work, it's never like, oh my God, my life is falling to crap. And like, you know, like I'm not saying it in a right. way of, pity me, feel sorry for me, give me a hug. I'm saying in a way of like, hey dude, I just want to pick your mind on this. So I'm having some difficulty with my boss right now and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And when I frame it like that, I don't get the wounded hug. I get more of the like, oh, this is a math problem or oh, th this is a problem that we can solve on this walk. So I think that's kind of a way of, of being vulnerable 
if you frame your vulnerability in the form of a question that you're you're trying to resolve. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And you know, I'm not necessarily talking about um, you know, that version. What I mean is like if it's over time, like if it's a thing that takes um a long time to solve. Yeah. I feel like there's a it's there's a there's a threshold of patience. You know, and like I wonder if some um, psychologist of some kind can actually put a number to it. Like, how many times could you bring up the subject to somebody before they get tired of hearing you say? Yes, it? that is. A, is that it is four? A... Is it seven? <laughs> you know, that's a very good question. I mean, thankfully, we do have like licensed therapists and psychologists that their job is to listen to the same problems. But are they right? that great, though? <laughs> I, I mean, th there are some gems out there. I will say, you know, like like if you you can you can find there are there are talented people. I think though that you also have to hold yourself accountable right. as well in that in instance. So if you're saying, if you're talking about the same problem for, you know, for like 20 different times, you're saying, you're basically regurgitating the same issue, then that's a point where it's like, okay, I've told enough people about this, I've certainly said it enough times, now I need to close the door, meditate, journal, and I need mm -hmm. to start doing some of that hard work and solving the issue myself. So I, I think maybe even having a rule like, okay, if I've told at least eight people about this problem or I've said this problem at least 10 different times, that's that's it. Now I need to lock myself in the back cave and figure out how to solve it on my own. 100%. And you should be doing that from the beginning. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's not like... Um... But it's okay. I will say, I mean, look, sometimes it's okay to bounce things off people. If you immediately go into the back cave and say, I got it. You want to kind of just hear your thoughts. Like it's nice to sometimes just hear how other people react. And you can even just look at their facial. Like you're going to be doing that, and and that's okay. You can discard that. You might you might go with that feeling, but it might be nice to bounce it. But once that bouncing period is over, then there's no excuse. Then mm -hmm. you gotta do the hard work. Hundred percent. The work always has to be there, you know. But you could be failing the entire time, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. But like yeah. failing forward. But you know, I just find that interesting. Because part of our culture is that too, right? It's like to keep things in reserve, like quietly pack away things. Right, yes. You know, and, and that's been evolving, I think. I think it's become a little bit more open. Yes. Um, over maybe the eight, ten years, right? But my parents, at least, like they're pretty, they're pretty tight with that. You know, like they don't mm. like to talk too much about their personal stuff at all. Yeah, especially my, my grandparents. Uh, they're of the. I was having a conversation on another podcast. The World War II generation, man, totally those different. people didn't, and like, they, if they killed somebody in war or saw some other atrocity, you would never even know about it. They, they right. don't even speak of that. And I think that's the other extreme. I, I think when you're not sharing anything and keeping it totally bottled up, and those are, it's funny because the people that have like the most severe forms of trauma they're the ones that sometimes keep it quiet. Right. And then it's that person who's like, oh my God, I don't know where to take my dog. Uh, you know, she, she, she ran around the park. And, and like that, that's the person that's like spilling their drama left yes. and right. Yes, 100%, right? Squeaky wheel. Yeah, right. Okay, so think, thinking back about personal responsibility, I like this idea that there has to be a huge level of, like we've got the moral code and we have high levels of introspection and actually solving problems on your own. Would you agree that that's like um, on on the track of like self improvement of where you need to be? Yeah, I think you need foundations. How do you build the house? Build the foundation first, right? Like what keeps the tree up? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just simple. It's not ornate. 
and then throwing in the idea of a schedule. Like every, all of this kind of has to be. Now, I know people who carry marble notebooks or put like a thousand Google Calendar invites in their phone, like, <laughs> but there has to be some kind of rough idea of how your days are gonna look. And I think that's also a part of personal responsibility. I, I think if you're, if some random friend just texts you and says, hey, let's hang out, maybe it's not always such a good idea that you're always 100% available. Maybe you need to have some, some target. And, and one thing I would recommend on the, on the road to personal accountability is if you don't want to fill up every hour with something, at the very least have one thing in the day. And I would say smack dab in the middle of the day is pretty darn awesome. So you don't even have to wake up all that much early. You just have that thing at 12. And then from there, your days might start filling up. Yeah, I would say plan it weekly, you know, because that just fits nicely. Yes, I like that. Um, you know, of course, everyone's like daily goal, daily goal. Yes, 100%, 100%. But thinking on a weekly, like, replenishment is good. But I would actually argue doing the opposite. I would actually maybe sometimes even argue don't have a schedule. Really? Okay. Yeah, I think it depends. You know, what I think um, people need to look at their lives is like, what are the most important things in my life? What are the most common things in my life? How often am I scheduling? Am I the busy bee that's running around all over the place? Mm. Do the opposite. Whatever you do the most of, do the opposite. Because I think the duality in all things is incredibly important. You know, to understand the power of the voice, you go into a period of silence, mm. right? To understand the power of a voice, you maybe go into public speaking. Why? They're both talking about the power mm. of voice. That um, understanding that everything has its own shadow, so I think sometimes like not scheduling is good. Honestly, sometimes I, I had a I had a pretty substantial breakdown a few years ago, and you know I didn't know what to do, and I was still living here at the time, and I just said you know what I'm just gonna go and travel. Like I'm not gonna have a plan. Like I'm just I'm just gonna go. So I got a motorcycle license, and a week later, nice. I was traveling cross country 30 days, living out of a backpack, mm. just going wherever I felt. And let me tell you, I didn't have a schedule. And the sense of freedom of that, it's like a, a type of elation I can't express. I didn't schedule what day I'm lending on what, right? I just said, enjoy it as it comes. And that gave me what I needed then. So I think it depends. There might be, I, I agree that there might be a period in our life where we do need like cross-country 30-day motorcycle uh, journey. Okay, I think I'm going to go do that now. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that, that that is something. But even that is your schedule is finding yourself on that motorcycle. So I think that it's the purpose. You can remove things from your schedule that you no longer find purposeful. So for example, mm. if you're going to happy hour three days a week or something, you have to sit down and look at your schedule and say, is that, does that have purpose for me anymore? Is it really purposeful to chat and, and bitch and complain with my coworkers over things I can't control, right? And, and that's, exactly. that's the purpose. And if your schedule involves that motorcycle journey, but you know that after that 30-day motorcycle journey, you're going to have a better perspective of the world and find yourself, then I would say you've scheduled like a life-altering experience. You've actually scheduled 30 days. You've, and also, if you think about it, for that motorcycle journey, there was a lot of preparation that went in there, man, because you had to get your license you had to have enough money like in advance to make sure that you could buy food and whatnot. Like, so like there was like some level of foresight in making that journey work. That's fair. That's definitely fair. I guess. Yeah. So I guess schedule isn't just like thinking calendar 
or or timing yeah it's like also destination it's like arrival yes which is such a core part of our our human structure right yes like think about just where we came from finding a foreign shore or you know exploring new lands around your 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 current cave system where you could feel like you could plant or finding new herds of animals for you to go hunt for your family all that you could you could put into calendars you can put into destination like i see what you mean by that maybe you know i should look at the motorcycle trip more as that honestly but you know i didn't really plan it yeah no to be I, fair. I totally i'm sure that it was like it, it was very impromptu but what i like about it is that there was a destiny like a mental destination that hmm. you had like i, I feel That's like true. sometimes we do things and there's no mental destination so I, I think like those happy hour things are like, I just want to kill time. Like if your idea behind something is like this, this TV program or this happy hour is going to make the time go by faster, that's killing time. A motorcycle journey though, that you hope to like learn about the United States or learn and meet interesting folk and see how other people in Kansas live. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that that has like mental quality to it. You actually have mental quality in doing that because you're trying to get something out of it. That's fair, you know, and I will definitely like look at that and think about that today too. Now that we've covered personal uh, responsibility, let's talk more about what's going on in the world right now. So we're both here in New York. Um, we're promised that indoor dining is going to come back in two weeks, but we were <laughs> promised that before and it actually didn't happen. So who knows if that's actually going to happen. Millions of Americans are unemployed, businesses are shut down, and we have this idea of like, okay, I've got my schedule, I'm doing my push-ups, I have something planned at 10 a.m. every day, I'm waking up early. Where does society kind of come in and owe us something? And then some people say, oh my God, Aaron, you can't say that society owes you anything. Society owes you nothing. Is that really true? Like, like, what are you thinking? I think society owes someone a lot, but I don't necessarily think that um, where that boundary ends is where I would agree other people are saying it does. I think that society really owes basic, 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 basic needs, like Mm. the most basic step stool, and then have that ironclad. Everyone has a thing that they've come across in their life that never breaks, never falls apart. You can throw it in the mud, it still works, right? Like. That sense of quality, it's so simple. Yeah. You know, it's the simplest things. I think society needs to be that. They need to be our simple tools. And then whatever branches off of that, you know, is the flower to our stem. Society needs to be the stem. Where would that end? Well, I'm definitely one to have um, good health care for everyone. I agree, yeah. I think that that absolutely needs to come. And people attach certain words to that, socialist, whatever. To be honest, like my political leanings are so down the middle, it aggravates everyone I talk to. <laughs> same here. Same you know? here. You're on the right podcast. You know, the healthcare thing, I never understood that one because let's just say that you're a really hardcore conservative and you're like, everyone ought to pull themselves up. Well, how does a sick person do that? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've always said that like, yes, pull yourself up, but if you're sick, you've kind of made that impossible for that person. And I think it kind of creates, it snowballs into huger problems because that person's sick and now they can't go to work and now they can't pay their rent anymore and they can't pay a host of other bills. And then if they had just gotten the health care that they need, 
They would have been able to do all of these things, but because they're unable to get the health care that they need, they then need to utilize long, more long-term welfare. Whereas if they had just gotten that doctor's appointment and went back to work a week later, everything would have been fine. But now because I was sick for all that time, I'm homeless and now I need to be in a shelter and now I'm kind of on more long-term types of welfare. I agree. You know, it's really a matter of um, control, I guess, you know? I mean, with everything in life, people should definitely, who are sick, should be able to just pick up their phone and get help. Sure. Like, for any advanced society. And if we're talking about the richest country of all time, right, then, you know, that should be a no-brainer, in my opinion. Welfare, I think, is a different story, honestly. I think that consistent welfare is a problem and a challenge, but there's other ways, there's a million ways to skin a cat. That was a saying that, like, we would say in Georgia, right? There's a million ways to skin a cat. So there's a million ways to give welfare. What if you were to find out that the person on welfare spends 70% of their welfare check on food? Mm. Is it more effective for you to choose healthy food and package it to them as opposed to giving them a like a monetary EBT credit? EBT card, yeah. Well, EBT, you still buy bad food. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like they're not because they're a lot of people aren't educated on what is good food. So Here's like what I would suggest society should do. Like I, I learned about this on this trip that I took, right? It's called the trophic cascade. I've never heard of this thing before. Never heard of it either. So it's something in like natural science, right? So I think it was like 20 years ago, um, the beef industry pushed out wolves in America because they were killing the cattle. And that's like one of our top exports. So they got rid of the gray wolf. Recently, we've been reintroducing it. And this is basically what's happened. Like, the gray wolf comes in, and, you know, all the game doesn't realize that they're being hunted anymore because they've had, like, two, three generations of no wolves. Um, so they feel very safe. They're hanging out in the riverbanks. Their heads are down drinking water. They're not paying attention. So what changes from that? Because of the effect of one specific entity, there's this amazing bounty of change. So now this game is no longer on the riverbanks of rivers. So what happens? The reeds start growing back, which means fish eggs have a place to go, which means fur is now raising, which means beavers coming, which means they can create more wetland, which means more fowl, more fir trees, so on and so forth. So a single entity, when looked at, can create a trophic cascade. Wow. That is how I think society should operate. Where are our vector points of creating a trophic cascade? And then only do that. Because the choice should be for personal responsibility. Well, I want that or I don't. Social responsibility should be we're here to make sure that you can elevate yourself as a human. We're not, there's no other agenda than that. Yeah. Uh, forgive me, my, my physics knowledge on vectors is a little weak, but <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I will say this like, with the vector point, with. Um, like let's say food stamps, for example. If let's say the government said, okay, with this card you can only buy healthy food. But let's just pretend that that did happen. Now there would be some people that would uh, march to the streets and be like, yes. well, that's my civil liberties. But and I right. kind of see it a little differently. I would say, okay, you, for whatever reason, maybe it's your fault, maybe through no fault of your own, you're unable to feed yourself. I remember I talked to somebody who was from Thailand, and she said that in Thailand there are these Buddhist monks, and every morning the Buddhist monks will come down from the monastery, and they have their hands open, or they have like a, a, an empty bowl, 
um, that they carry with them. And the only way that they can eat is based on whatever someone gives them. They mm. cannot wow. pick their own food. They cannot be like, no, no, I want that corn over there. So they walk around town and they just have their empty bowl and whatever they are given, no matter how old that piece of bread is, no matter how stale something is, they have to say thank you. And that's how they live. And the, the funny thing about these Buddhist monks is that they never starve to death. Like they ne they've never gotten to a point where no one gives, like no one has no food and they are just turned away and, and they die. They're always given something, but they kind of have this humility that like, okay, I, my, my food supply is completely dependent on somebody else. Therefore, I should have no say in what it is that they give me. So if I'm not, if, yeah, if I'm not producing my own food, then I have to be kind of reliant on whatever other people say that I should eat, whether I like it or don't like it. And I see the same thing with the food stamps. It's like, okay, maybe this is your fault, maybe it's not your fault. But the bottom line is, is that if somebody else is putting food in your mouth, do you really have the right to kind of criticize what food is coming towards you? Yeah, and it's an opportunity to leverage. And leverage sounds like, you know, like power over somebody. So let me reframe that. It's an opportunity to apply. Yeah, I don't know. Leverage is the only word that I can come to, right? It's a, it's a chance for a government who's spending money to feed somebody who's in need and also maybe educate them on the purpose of food. Yes. Which yes. is to replenish yourself. Right. And to give you more willpower. And, you know, to have that as a new leapfrog point so that things aren't so hard. Right. But they don't approach it that way. No, they don't. You know, it's either like you have to eat this government cheese, which, by the way, half of it's plastic, right? <laughs> Grilled cheeses, basically. That's like what American cheese is. I argue that there's a better way. There's a different way. Sure. And I think that's kind of where like corporate entities have a more service-minded approach, honestly, than some government. Yes. And that's why a lot of people like really want corporate people to come into government, which, you know, I don't necessarily agree with. But the idea of like, no, I'm going to improve whatever I can. And this is why it's useful to stick with me. Right. Should be the basis of government. But, I, you know, I think that message is lost. So that kind of trophic cascade, whether it be healthcare, food, transportation, um, all those things. And there's always a cost. That should be the conversation. You know, I, I'm not saying like wave magic wand and make that done. Because there's always like, well, how many cameras are on transit systems? And, you know. Yes. So I, I like this idea that... Um like, 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 it kind of comes down to the phrase, like, beggars can't be choosers, in, mm -hmm. in, in this sort of way. So that when social response, like, we agree that there is social responsibility in terms of health care, in terms of food. And would you even go as far as to add that to, like, housing? Should everyone have a roof over their head, or is that going too far? I think the ideology behind my choice on that would be everyone should have a roof over their head. Okay. But that gets muddled up with a whole bunch of other factors. But I would also argue that the way we're building isn't even the right way. Right. You know, I think the way we build everything is extremely plastic and flimsy. I, I divulge my thinking into how the ancients did it and how they still have structures today that are completely operational to a point. Right, right. You know? The Olmecs still have their like, uh, heads yeah. out there. <laughs> exactly. Perfect example. Yeah. Right? The Olmecs, 100%. One of the oldest stone structures we have, right? Still up there and available. So, like, I would say how much focus is the government putting on a state of permanence mm. as opposed to 
how can we um, cycle it through? As, I want yeah. to share a story, and this is actually a story my uncle told me about um, someone he knew that moved into a housing project in the 50s. And this, this um, guy that he knew um, moved into a brand new housing project that had just been erected in the Bronx in the 1950s. And it was really clean. It was actually pretty decent looking. Now we could make, you know, we could say maybe they use like cheap drywall or this and that. Hmm. Um, but it was a really clean housing project. Within two years, the entire housing project facility was completely trashed. People were not throwing out their garbage, or they would just open up their windows and literally just toss the trash out the window. They couldn't be bothered. I hate that. Yeah, yeah, they couldn't be bothered to take the trash to the garbage disposal. And again, people look at housing projects and think, well, that was cheaply built. That's why these housing projects are failing, like, like the, the drywall. And maybe there's some truth in that. Maybe they did, the architects and the engineers who made these things did cut corners. I, I totally believe that that's true. But I do say to him, like, like the fact that he moved into this facility when it was brand new and, and the walls were completely white and clean and everything, and then within two years the entire place was trashed, I think regardless of how flimsy the structure is, the inhabitants have a responsibility to take good care of that structure. A hundred percent. But I think that there's a balance there. And I think that correlation isn't exactly causation with that. There's so many factors to that, right? Like, okay, so for a housing project, a lot of the trash is like fast food stuff, right? Yeah, right. It really is. A lot of fast food products, a lot of plastic bags, a lot of, you know... Cigarettes. Cigarettes. And so I think because you're the product of the five people you hang out with the most and you're in this horribly depressing location and you don't have an option to change it for yourself and everyone's feeling this way, I think we have more of a social responsibility to create an environment that doesn't necessarily perpetuate that. And look, this is all, all well and good, right, in the thought. I'm not saying I have this drawn out in a plan, right? right but right. there's a better way to house a human being than putting them into a tall building surrounded by potential crime that, you know, cuts corners and every um, advantage to living possible. You know, there's no, there's no life behind it. Let me ask you this. If we, let's say, erected new housing projects and... They were made out of like state-of-the-art material. Like we got like marble, we got chandeliers, top-notch. And the people who initially move into that project will be enamored by it, right? So if we were to start all over again and create like really pristine, gorgeous-looking housing, mm-hmm. how does the government then enforce personal accountability and be like, hey, don't eat so much fast food, and when you eat, and when you do eat please use this garbage disposal. Like, like how, how do people, how does the government do that without being labeled the evil fascist police? A hundred percent. And that's always the thing, right? Being labeled the evil fascist police. Well, I would say this. There's really two ways you can do it. You can do it like on a, a monetary way, right? It's like, what's the cost in a five, eight year period of revamping an entire housing project due to destruction of property, trash, and, you know, the removal of particular things. Okay, great. So we got a number, right? Now, if we were able to incentivize, I'm not saying directly pay. I'm saying incentivize, uh, you know, with a beacon of hope, 
whether it's a credit on your education or a specific grant that can be sent to your college degree or, you know, covers funeral costs or maybe it employs an elderly person to to be going around the community to make sure everyone's safe and healthy, something like that. If you were to find the cost and then identify a way where you can incentivize the culture of responsibility with things that matter, that help people grow, um, then I think that that would be a great way. But I don't necessarily think it's working like that. And there's a lot that I don't know on the subject matter, right? Yeah, but. yeah, no, no, for sure. Um, I, I think in a lot of these communities, tapping into like the elderly population that kind of lives there is a good, because they, they sometimes come to a place of wisdom and they kind of come to a place of like, okay, I see, I, I, I see like gangs, I see things around this neighborhood that I'm, I'm not really feeling. I think if they were better utilized as being beacons of the community right. and sort of had relationships with public officials or the police or whoever it is that's responsible for like uh, patrolling and upkeeping that area, then you, you've kind of given power and you've given like autonomy to a person that actually lives within that unit. Because we, we, always, see, we always see it as like the, the fascist state as being something external, like people who live in wonderful mansions that then come to the housing project and boss people around. But I think that if there were positions of leadership uh, and those people actually lived in those projects, then people would actually listen because they, they're actually in the same boat. Yeah. I think that there's always a solution to almost any problem. You know, like if I was in their position, this is what I'd be thinking. Well, the whole world is trying to keep me here. The, the cards are stacked against me. In my opinion, it feels very structural, right? And quite frankly, those around me all aren't necessarily giving me the example I need to to rise above those expectations. So if you were to identify those three trophic cascades and then find a way to address those within the community itself, their accountability is going to be the end result. They're not able to point to other factors. Or this particular hallway is filthy because of, of that government entity or sometimes giving the person the responsibility to take care of it themselves while also having this really great reward which can be earned, not yeah. given, is a really great way for that habitual cycle to change. Um, I want to I relay a story. I want to see how you would react to this, okay? So there was a, an elderly man that actually lived in my building and he doesn't do this anymore. But when we went to the trash disposal, sometimes people throw the wrong thing in there, they throw the wrong box in there, or you know, they mismatch or they just don't properly dispose of it. They just throw it in the room and then don't throw it down the chute. This elderly man would actually, like if it had some kind of label or he had an idea of where it came from, he would actually take that trash and put it in front of someone's door. Do you think that that's going too far? Is that too passive aggressive? Is that too rude? Or is that just like the right level of like, hey, you didn't dispose of this trash prop properly. I'm sending it back to you. Honestly, I would say it depends on just how crappy of a person that, uh, you know, person who's messing with everyone's trash is. I don't think that that's necessarily the worst case scenario that, a, you know, a crazy old man can do in retaliation of some poor tendency. Right. 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 But obviously that raises the question, well, is he even coherent enough to realize that it's you know, that he's doing this on purpose or is he just bringing it out to the person's door? I think, 
I think his intention. I spoke to this guy, and, and he got in trouble for doing that. And, of course. And the uh, yeah. the yeah, he said, "Don't you know? It's not up to you. We'll 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 take care of it." And his his rationale was like, if I bring the trash to their door, it's just a sign that like we're like I'm aware or somebody's aware that you're not properly disposing of your trash. You're not recycling it properly. Please do this again. That was now. Whether the person on the other end of that door interpreted that way, probably not. They probably were like, oh my god, that's um, Seymour, blah, that's not his name, but like, that's him just being crazy. And I don't know, I, you know, it, it could also be a moment where that person on the other end of the door says, all right, all right, I'll make sure that this milk carton goes in the blue trash bin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. It could 100% work, you know? <laughs> it depends on like what kind of person that is, who, the tenant we're talking about who, um, isn't necessarily doing things properly. I mean, you know, sometimes the check is what you need. You yes. know, people are afraid to say that, but sometimes you need a gut check. One thing also that, that interests me is that I feel like this idea of personal accountability is much higher amongst the much older in our society. You hear of these, like, have you ever been to the Tenement Museum in the Lower East Side? I've not. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do check it out. It's awesome. And these people absolutely lived in in squalor. Like it, it, it was very rough going. This is um, like gangs in New York times, or yeah, yeah. I, you know, this is like um, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. So oh, okay. you have like a lot of um, Eastern Europeans, a lot of Jewish, Irish immigrants that mm -hmm. are coming into the city at this time. And believe me, you would hear these stories of like three families crammed into like one room and so forth. Yeah. But there seemed to be, like, a sense of community. Like, there seemed to be this idea of we all, we knew, you knew who all your neighbors were. You may not like them, and they may snore really loudly at night, but there was this, like, sense of community so that if you did something really, really, really bad, everyone, you know, living in that tenement building would hear about it and can kind of hold you accountable. Right. But I think that that isn't necessarily a failure on how we set up housing as much as it is a failure on how we reinforce culture. Right, yes. Um, I mean, people from those times are coming from a place where it's all oral tradition. You know, they're very close with the generation before them. They're in a tighter age range from their parents and their grandparents. They can have great-grandparents. Very few people these days have great grandparents. Alive, yeah, yeah. Right, like that. They kind of like go by like ten, twelve. If you're lucky, yeah. you know, because and people be, are having kids older. Way I think, older. I think people had kids younger back then, so there was more of a chance for great grandparents. Yes, and I. The reason why I bring that up is because I think that there's a more there's a stronger congruency in the links of the chain, right? Yeah, yeah. And that coupled with the fact that. You know, their whole culture wasn't around internet and, you know, the exploitation of those things. Right, and also yes. like the, um, you know, the, the gold rush of the one paragon entity that resembles that cultural signifier. You know, like, you know, I, I love The Rock, you know, but like he is the signifier of like Hollywood man, <laughs> right? Yeah. He right. is, you know, and there's signifiers in so many different places. So like we flock to that. And you could say those are heroes, but it's not the same because it's daily. I think that because we have that, we've lost that sense of community. Yes. So we definitely need that 100%. To summarize what we're saying here is that we all believe in social responsibility and we believe in healthcare, food stamps, and even housing. But I think that with each of these things, there's a touch of here's your responsibility. 
in it. And like even with the healthcare example, we provide that free healthcare under the assumption that, okay, you're gonna sit in the hospital for a month and get better, and then once you get better, you're going to reintegrate into society and be productive once again. And I think that with everything that we offer, there's always this layer of like, here, we're not just giving it to you, we're giving it to you, but it comes at you personally growing in some way. Yeah, and also we're not really willing to lay ourselves down on the altar for what's next. Like, can you imagine if the U.S. government was like, okay, here's what we need to do to get everyone in this country free health care, perfect health care. If you have cancer, it's like, what? You, you just roll into a hospital, say, I need to get better. If you break a leg, you roll into the hospital, you say, get better. Yeah. But the trick is, is that the current living generation can't get it. Right, exactly. But they'll pay for it. Yeah. We'll take $5 out of your check. But every other generation in America will have it forever. Exactly. Right. Do you think we'd be willing to do that? I certainly would. Like I, 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 I believe that. I, I think that um, just living that like over my head, like anytime I, I, I lose a job or something like that, it's kind of nice to just say to myself, "Oh, that's not an issue." And also, you know, I think the Democrats made a good argument that it would actually promote a lot more entrepreneurs, would actually promote people working part time because we're we're really chained to our full-time jobs and there's nothing worse in killing innovation than a full-time job it's awesome for health benefits and paying your rent on time but if you're working full-time it can be very very difficult to like kind of start that idea because if you come home late at, for, late from work you're like all right yeah i'm gonna now start building the website and doing this mm -hmm. but i think there's a lot of people depending on where you are at life that could get by maybe they have enough savings and they could get by working part-time and then they could devote more time to their special hobby or interest or passion. And that will, like, phenomenally just improve humanity. 100%. But I think that that's on the individual level. Yes. I think that the way governments think is they're not thinking that way. Because yeah. I can point to a few arguments where I can, like, say that it's the opposite, maybe, of what you said, right? Like, recently, you know, I told you, like, I'm a nerd on history. Sure. I love so, nerds on history. Um, the Edo period in Japan was like this interesting period where they kind of modernized themselves to be able to keep up with other world economies. And then they slowly started taking small bites out of Manchuria and parts of China and Korea to like expand their empire so that they're no longer wielding sticks and swords while getting shot at. Yeah, right, exactly. Right? Majing restoration, I, I think yeah. also. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I think honestly the government in that particular time was like, okay, we're going to have everyone work very hard right because right. we have ground to cover yes, yes and so i think the whole nine to five whatever the original hours were structure was literally to to build it around that it was that like that makes sense that makes sense and maybe maybe mm. now that we're quote on top or i don't know if we're on top well, it's anymore. changed yeah it's changed and i think that I, I know that with all of my sort of office experience my limited office experience and nine to five jobs I always did my job in like two to three hours, plow through it, and then I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. I gotta sit in this office now for five hours and look busy. Yeah. And that to me, I think, is the ultimate uh, productivity killer. And, and I, 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 I think that the one positive thing with COVID is that if you're working at home, you could just do your job in three hours and then do the stuff that you really wanna do. 
And what's wrong with that? Is there is there something wrong? Like, do I really have to pretend to look busy for the remaining five hours of, of what it takes? And there are, and, and some people are probably looking at me like, Aaron, I'm working those full 12 hours. Are you, are you crazy? And I'm like, God bless you. Yes, that's awesome. Like, if mm-hmm. you are working those 12 hours and doing it, um, um, being productive. And when I was teaching, I actually did. I didn't have any downtime. Like, when you're teaching, yeah, it's crazy. Zero, zero downtime. Every minute was spent um, lesson planning or grading something and, and, and doing something of that effect. So I, I, I do feel for people who are working every second. But I think that productivity can't just be measured by time. It's actually just measured by productivity, just how much you're producing. 100%. But, you know, again, I would say that there's multiple degrees of difference. It's like individual productivity. And, you know, does that matter to those that create the organizational structure in the first place? Right, right. You know? Okay, you know, I don't know which is more important than the other, right? Like if you could change yourself to be more individually productive and innovative at the cost of the country being less productive and innovative, you know, I don't know. You know, that's like an interesting dichotomy that, you know, that would just bring us down the rabbit hole. Yeah. But the one thing I've worked in both, like before I was helping run companies, it was like nine to five was not my thing. You know, I was hospitality. I was like bartender. You know, server, busboy, like first coming here, $300 a week, working all week. Crap, crap stuff, you know. Um, And yeah, I worked all the time. Nine to five, I think is a blessing, honestly. The hours aren't that bad. Um, (laughs) You know, nine to five structure conveniently sits in a very societal saddle. I don't know. You know, it's very easy to fit like all the football games are after all of your happy hours are after your churches is on the weekend. Your, your, you know, your meetups are on the weekend. Yeah. Things like that. I will say this. It is like, again, most I've been teaching and there was a schedule for teaching, um, whether it was eight to four, but here's, here's the catch though. And here's the rub. It is very static and it's very predictable because you know your hours, but then there's all that after work that kind of comes the emails that come after and it's like as a teacher my schedule would end at 3 30 or 4 but i wasn't leaving at those times so i think that we have these nine to five jobs but then we're tethered remotely to them we're still we're still they're still squeezing us even when we're not physically there yes and i I think i think france actually has a law they were maybe the first country that it's illegal for an employer to actually email their employees after work hours that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. If only that were true in yeah. what I do, you know. <laughs> Tying it back to the social and, and personal accountability, I think that whatever mechanism, and, and I think the final frontier on this is UBI, of, okay, there, there is this argument that jobs are disappearing, they're becoming automated, uh, we're not going to be able to do go to work anymore, and so forth. We don't want to live in a society where it's like, here's your UBI check, your life is inherently worthless. Just sit at home, relax, play video games. Like there's nothing, there's nothing that you, sir, could possibly do to make this world a better place. We don't want to get to that level no. because that can lead to forms of like social disintegration in terms of people yeah. not. Everyone will become a nihilist. Everyone will have like an existential crisis. Everyone will not know what to do with themselves. And people who don't know what to do with themselves tend to engage in things that aren't the best for them. But if we can somehow have that check, but then there's something tethered to it of like, here's what you ought to be doing. I don't care if it's going to art school for seven hours a day or 
you have to write some book or, or something. There has to be some kind of purpose attached. And this is the sinew that we're missing. Yes. You know, that connects the two joints. It's like, we can give you UBI, but your personal code and societal code needs to be leveraging what we are giving you as a gift to not put it to waste. I love that. Yes, that's a good fusion. That is awesome, man. If you have the personal code in place and you are provided like some type of handout, it will not be squandered because mm -hmm. we as citizens now trust each of us. Like we, we all trust that we all have a high moral code that if the government is feeling benevolent and generous and giving us this money, we trust that our neighbor is not going to be squandering it. That's a beautiful place for society to be. And, you know, it is the most elevated Right. Yeah. It doesn't require like a three letter acronym to make sure you're towing the line. It doesn't require like, um, you know, uh, a row of people holding bells yelling shame if you do it wrong. You know what I'm yeah, saying? It's like, yeah, yeah. All it is is it's just a gentle understanding. And I think that um, France may have that in a way. I like that. Yes. You know, they've, they've hit the magical balance. Well, Alex, I think we've, we've kind of made some headway. If any policy list uh, advocates are out there, uh, please check this out. That concludes the 12th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.